All right. Well, I mentioned earlier in the service that today we have a guest speaker, and I'm excited because this is my friend Mark Hartley, and he's with us here today. And it's fun to have him here with us today, not just because um, he's speaking, but because he's a dear friend. And when you move to a new place and you're kind of like just getting settled, all that, it's nice to have old friends come and visit. And so I've been working to try to get him and his wife uh, to come visit our family because. Uh, Mark and his wife, Nicole, um, are, are dear, dear, dear friends to us and our family. Our kids love them more than I think maybe even Lisa and I do. <laughs> and uh, my youngest son, Levi, um, when we lived back in Vancouver, um, Mark and Nicole moved into our neighborhood, and Levi would invite himself over for um, play dates with Mark. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. so they would play Smash Brothers and Pokemon and whatever else. They just had a lot of fun. So my kids... Um, are, uh, just love Mark and his wife, Nicole. They just had a four-month-old, and you might have been sharing all that earlier. I don't know if you're going to share all that today, but That's anyway. Right. That's but, right. but it works. It's fun because uh, I was looking for an opportunity to have my old friend come and be with our family, and it's fun for us. Mm. But also it's fun for me because here at South Hills, um, this is in my new church, and I have a whole lot of new friends. And I love the, the friends that I've made here. And it's fun for me to have old friends meet new friends and my new friends meet my old friends. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. this is an opportunity for me to be able to say, hey, Mark, come meet my church, meet my people, and for them to meet Mark. Mark was a former student of mine, and we then he became part of the staff. Uh, and we've known each other for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's fun mm-hmm. to watch him grow. He's now a pastor and leading uh, faithfully God's people in a church in Vancouver. So we're grateful to have you here. Thanks for being here and for Thanks, sharing, my friend. Thanks, All right, Brian. I'll let you take Thank over. You, thank you. <laughs> it is an interesting experience when you have to ask your wife, can you have a video game play date with a five-year-old? Uh, now, Levi's much older than that. He's grown a little bit, but we would, he would come over and hang, and we, we, we absolutely loved it. And um, my family, we love the Paulson family. Scott's had a huge impact in my life as a believer. I was a high I gave my life to Christ. I grew up in the church that Scott was working at. And uh, after I became a Christian, Jesus completely transformed my life. All I wanted to do was be around the church. I that high school student that would, after school, drive to the church on Mondays and sit in, like, Scott's cubicle for an hour uh, and just bug him for an hour. So if, 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 you, if you're a youth pastor and you know that feeling of that student that just keeps hanging around the church, love on them. Be patient with them. You'll make a great impact in them, okay? Today, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5. You've got a Bible you can open up to it. You were also handed a handout when you came in. It's there for you in a moment. We'll, we'll study that. But first, I want to talk about extreme measures because it's going to help us understand the context in which we study today. Okay, sometimes we have these moments or these experiences in our life that cause us to uh, implement extreme measures. If you ever had water damage at your house... Uh, you've changed the ways that you treat water, maybe the way you treat the washing machine or the way you treat the shower. Or if you've ever found water damage, it's like you got to change the whole house. You got to make it fork knocks or you never want to experience that again. Or maybe you've been late to, uh, to your flight, talking to the dads in the room. Okay. They get their family to the airport two and a half hours early. Okay. This is my father who would get us there and we'd sit at the gate for an hour and a half before other people showed up. Uh, my recent experience is in buying a vehicle, purchasing a vehicle. Uh, my wife and I have been looking for a minivan, and uh, we can't afford a new minivan, so we've been looking for used minivans, and we were told that if you can get a, a rebuild title, that's where you make your money back. 
Uh, it's a little risky, but you can make your money back on it. And so we began to look for rebuild titles on Craigslist and on Facebook Marketplace. And eventually I found one and I thought, man, I got a screaming deal here. And it was like 10 grand off the price it should have been that Kelly Blue Book had it as. And I'm like, we're going to go buy this thing today. But I had a friend who, who had also been doing his own research in minivans and said, well, did you look at the Carfax? And I said, no, 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 I don't, I don't give money to things like that. No way, right? Maybe you're like me, and anytime someone says, would you like the warranty payment, or would you like the TV insurance for a year? I'm like, no, you're not getting my money any further than you got it right now. So I said, no, I didn't pay for the Carfax. He said, no, no, listen, I've got a free Carfax. I already paid for it. We'll, we'll use it, okay? And we plugged in the VIN number, and we found out that the vehicle had been totaled twice, stolen three times, and flooded once, like driven into a lake flooded. And all of a sudden, that deal wasn't looking like a deal anymore, right? And you would have thought, I learned. You would have thought I learned. And I said, you know what I'm going to implement now? I'm going to implement that we use a Carfax every time we want to buy a vehicle. And so eventually, another minivan came up, and we implemented the Carfax. And guess what? It wasn't a rebuild title. It was a clean title. And it was still a pretty good deal. And so we were excited. I did my research there. I went there. We purchased the van. We were so excited. And then two weeks later, it started dumping transmission fluid all over the driveway, which I thought was uh, coolant. So I thought, oh, no big deal. We can fix that. You're not supposed to drive a vehicle when it's dumping either of those two fluids. But, but transmission fluid might cause more damage quicker. So we got that fixed. And I had to go back and talk to the dealership. And then a couple weeks later, I noticed my tires keep losing air. All three of them. There's one that keeps air, but all three keep losing air like every day down to like 18. I got to keep pumping these things back up. So I brought in the Les Schwab. Guy gave me a call an hour later and said, you need four new tires and you need four new wheels. There was $2,500 right there that day. And you know what? We're going to need to do them like right now. And it just killed me. And you would think, the story is done. No, the story is not done. Because on Friday, my wife and I left Vancouver, Washington, on our way out to this great community here. And it's, it's nighttime, and we're driving down Highway 84. And if you know it, it's dark, windy, and cold up the gorge. And about 15 miles from Hood River, something popped in the van. And the check engine light came on, and the acceleration stopped working, and it started smoking and we had to pull it off on some logging road. And I've got my wife and my four-month-old in the back of the car. And the van, we had to leave it there. We literally left it on the side of the road. And luckily, I had family living in Hood River that came and picked us up. And my parents brought us a second car so that we get here today. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to take some extreme measures next time I buy a car. <laughs> I'm not just bringing a car fax. I'm bringing my own mechanic with me. And we're going to do a full inspection on that vehicle right then and there before I put any money down. Because something happened to me that I said, we are never doing this again. And probably as I talk about this, you have your own version of this in your life. You have your own things that you have set up because something went really, really bad. And you're like, we're going to take some extreme measures to make sure that never happens again. Okay, Hold on to that feeling. Because we're going to look at a people group that implemented some extreme measures because there's some things that went really, really bad and they said we are never going to let that happen again. And I'm talking about the religious leaders of the time in Israel when Jesus showed up. Okay, if you've been around church, if you've been around the Bible, you're familiar with the characters of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. 
the religious leaders in the time period when Jesus shows up. And they're often easy to mock and critique, and they're shown as being legalistic and extreme in their behaviors, but there's a reason for it. And I want us to study that context shortly and quickly. We could do it the whole morning, frankly. There's a lot of history there. But I think it's helpful for us to understand the context as we enter into the story because Jesus is going to be challenging the systems that they have established. Okay, a question that might have ever shown up for you as you've been studying the Gospels is, where in the world did these religious leaders come from? Where did the Pharisees come from? Right, when you study Moses back in Exodus and God is helping Moses establish structure and rhythm to the nation of Israel, are the Pharisees there? No. No, who's responsible for the spiritual formation of the nation of Israel? Well, it's, it's Moses as the prophet. It's his brother Aaron as the high priest. It's the, the tribe of Levites as the priests as they introduce and organize and run things like the sacrifice and the feasts and festivals and these moments of fasting. It was them that were responsible for spiritual formation in the nation of Israel. There's no talk of religious leaders like the Sadducees or the Pharisees. But by the time we show up in Jesus' story, I mean, these guys have power. They have control. They have authority. They have so much power that they're able to get Jesus killed by the Roman Empire. So where did these guys come from? It's a great Bible study question. And so if I, I mean, again, we could take all morning studying it, but I'll give you the quick flyby, all right? And if you want to take a quick nap, that's okay. Someone can tap you when we get back to Luke chapter 5, okay? (laughs) But the flyby is this, okay? The first king that the nation of Israel gets is King Saul. And he does some good things and he does some bad things. He starts well, but he ends poorly, right? And after that, we get King David, which is probably the most famous historic king in the nation of Israel. And King David does some incredible things. He he unites the 12 tribes. He unites the clans. Before, it was kind of like regional clan, and he brings it all under one banner, Uh, He widens the borders of the nation of Israel. He develops their military power. He points their heart towards the Lord. And after King David, we get his son Solomon, who's the wisest man to ever live. And he widens the boundaries even further. Israel becomes larger. Uh, He introduces different kind of systems that helps its economy. They, They build the temple, one of the seventh wonders of the world. People from all around the world come to Israel. And everything looks like it's just going great. But Solomon falls in love with not one woman, but a lot of women. And he has multiple, multiple, multiple wives. And that's even an understatement of how many wives King Solomon has. And as he tries to keep those wives happy, he, he realizes, well, I need to start worshiping their gods. And so he starts worshiping false gods. And he turns his heart away from worshiping the Lord. And he starts worshiping false gods. This starts the beginning of the spiral of the nation of Israel. Because after Solomon, you might remember, there's a civil war. There's a civil war in the nation of Israel, and it splits into two groups, a big group and a little group. There's 10 tribes in the north. There's two tribes in the south. The north call themselves Israel because they're the bigger ones, so they keep the name, right? And the smaller tribes called Judah, and they split in civil war. And after that, if you're studying First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles or many of our books in the Old Testament, you're studying the, the downfall of these two nations. And the northern nation doesn't have a single good king. It's just bad king after bad king after bad king. And ultimately, in God's patience, justice, he brings the nation of Assyria in. And Assyria conquers the north. 
And the South has some good and some bad kings, but ultimately they continue to keep their heart far from God. And ultimately God sends the Babylonians to conquer them. Right? This would be, um, if, you, if you're reading in the Old Testament, this would be the story of Ezekiel, the story of Habakkuk, the story of Daniel. Uh, Jeremiah is right at the beginning of that as, as the Babylonians are coming in, right? So the Babylonians come in, you remember this story, and they take the nation of Judah into exile. There's three different exiles. Take them back to the east, back to Babylon, and they're there for, for 70 years, right? This is the story of Daniel. But God said, I'm going to keep a remnant in Israel. I'm not done with you guys yet. I made promises to you, and I'm a God that keeps my promises, right? That's really good for you and me, right, that God keeps his promises. And so he takes that remnant, and he brings them back. And they come back to this city that once was beautiful, and now it's rubble. There's no wall. The temple, the, one of the seventh wonders of the world, this beautiful temple, you learn about how Solomon constructed it. It's gone. It's been sacked. It's been destroyed. And in the book of Ezra, we learn that the people are weeping, specifically the older people, the people who remember what it was like before. In the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, we learn of a posture that the religious leaders that have come back with this remnant, with this small group, they start developing a posture of never again. Never again will we turn our hearts from God. And so they start implementing structures. And so if you want to know where do the Pharisees come from, well, it's birthed out of that. It's birthed out of a people group that experienced all different kinds of hardships because they turned their heart from God. And when they came back, when God allowed them back into the land, they said, never again. And not only did they have the law, but they needed someone to interpret the law. They needed someone to teach the law. And so they started to establish structures. That's 500 to 400 years before Jesus shows up. Okay, a lot can happen in five, 400 years, can it? And so over the course of that 500, 400 years, you have this group of people that begin to develop laws and rules, bumpers and guardrails to make sure that the Israelites won't actually cross the one law that they're supposed to. They would, they would invent and write laws to make sure that they wouldn't cross over those so that they wouldn't actually break the laws that God commanded. And you have all different kind of hardship in there. The Greeks show up 250 years later, Alexander the Great. They conquered the land. Then a couple of years later, right, Rome comes after that, and Rome conquers the land. So by the time we show up in Jesus' time, the land of Judah is called Judea. And it's no longer this nation of Israelites, but it's a region of land of people who are Israelites controlled by the Roman Empire. And so these religious leaders not only are trying to prevent the let's not go back to Babylon moment, but they're also trying to sustain their culture. They're worried about their people just intermixing with the Romans and the Greek culture and eventually losing everything that means that makes them an Israelite. And so that is the moment that we enter into this story. Sometimes it's easy to pick on the Pharisees, but they're trying to sustain, sustain something because they've seen it go really, really poorly. Tracking with me? Okay, nudge the person who fell asleep. Okay, so we can go back. All right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be in Luke uh, chapter 5 today. We're going to be in 27 through 39. It's the calling of Levi. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Why don't you stand and honor God's word and we'll read it together. Luke tells us this. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. 
Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they'll have to, they'll have to torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Let's pray. Jesus, as we just come before you, Lord, as we study your word, Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would you use your scripture, Lord, as you always do, to convict us, to encourage us, to motivate us, to draw us closer to you into relationship with you, Lord, so we can be sent out on mission with you. We love you, Father. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Everybody, you can take a seat. So you're in this series on grace, and there's many ways to talk about grace. We can, we can talk about the theology of grace, the need for grace, what did the cross of Christ ac- accomplish, why did Jesus have to die in our place, what do we um, get through faith in Jesus. This would be the book of Romans, right? The, the work of Jesus. We could study that today. Um, but I, I wanted us to look at something else. I wanted us to look at, at, at the experience of grace. What happens when we watch somebody's life changed by the grace of God? What happens to them? Um, and I thought the calling of Levi would be really helpful to study. Let's go back to that beginning section here. Now, if you're a note taker, uh, you can write, I, I did it in the key of P, okay? So if you're a note taker, you've got four sections there. We're going to look at a person, then we're going to go to a party, then we're going to look at a practice, and we're going to study a parable, okay? So if you're a note taker, you can write a person, a party, a practice, a parable. And we're going to take each one of those, we're going to learn from them, okay? So first we're going to look at a person. And the person is uh, Levi, this tax collector. Now, if you've been in church, you know about tax collectors. If you haven't been in church, uh, you still know a little bit something about tax collectors. You might not love it when your money is taken from the government, right? But let me give you the context on it because it's important. You see, the Roman Empire learned a, a valuable lesson, which was it was easier and more successful for them to employ local employees to, to acquire the taxes that they wanted than to send in diplomats as uh, taxes. And so they would, they would, uh, they would recruit uh, local people from around the world in the different pockets where they lived to be tax collectors. Well, for the nation of Israel, this remnant that's left, that's battered and been beat up over the thousand years, uh, does not love being under the thumb of the Roman Empire, doesn't love paying taxes to the Roman Empire, uh, no, they're waiting for a Messiah to show up that's going to free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. So what do you think it would be like if someone in your circle, in your group, in your culture, in your community decided to take a paycheck from the Roman Empire? 
Wouldn't go well, right? And here's how they'd make their money. They would show up at your house. They'd knock on your door. They would say, hey, taxes are due. Here's the percentage. And they had kind of an interesting job. They needed to make sure that Rome got their taxes, but they could charge you as much as they wanted to make sure they got their taxes. And it was a little bit of a balance because they couldn't charge you too much that it would break you because they need to make sure you still give your money to Rome because they don't want Rome breathing down their back. But they still wanted to make money for themselves. They were backed by Roman military. They were thugs. And they were definitely sellouts and betrayers of the nation of Israel. And so they're the scum of the, of the nation of Israel. People do not like these people. They hate them. They are despised. We have the story of Matthew. We have the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 that we can study. But the people do not like them. And so if you're a first century Israelite reading this story, and you learn that Jesus took an interest in a tax collector, you wouldn't be excited about it. It would rub you wrong. Okay, Uh, it it would be like when Richard Sherman went to go play for the 49ers, right? It rubbed us wrong a little bit, right? So there's a couple questions I think we should look at as we say this section. The first question is, uh, why did Jesus call him? Like why, when God took on flesh, came to earth, did he take an interest in a northern tax collector. We're still in the region of Galilee so far in Luke's gospel. So why do you take an interest in him? I think Jesus does this often. He takes interest in the outcast, in the rejected, in the forgotten, in the hated. He creates a spectrum so that when anybody looks at the story, they can't find themselves outside of it, but they can participate with it. If Jesus didn't call Levi, well, he could call me. If Jesus can call Paul, who's persecuting his best friends and killing Christians, well, then I guess I could be called as well, right? Jesus often goes to the far regions of the social society to make sure those people are included so that any of us that come to interact with the goodness of the gospel finds ourselves inside of that story, not on the outside of it. The other reason why I think Jesus calls Levi is because Levi knows what he's doing is not working. He knows it's not working, and he's desperate for change. And and, in text, it says this, um, he left everything and followed him. That's another question. Why did Levi leave? He financially, he's stable, right? He's making money off people. uh, Security, he's backed by the Roman Empire. He might have a nice house. I can picture a young man entering into this who wants to kind of reject his Jewish orthodoxy and thinks this wouldn't be a bad gig. I can meet Roman elites. I could get in with the, the popular and the powerful. I can make some money. I could get a hot tub one day, maybe, maybe two hot tubs, right? Maybe a lake house. Enters into it, but as he enters into it, he realizes this is not satisfying the things within my heart. Then he learns about this rabbi. There's this new rabbi on the scene, and he's different, and he, he doesn't do it the way the other rabbis do it, but his sermons, they're incredible, and he speaks with authority that no one's ever seen, and then he's doing miracles. He's healing people, and he's casting out demons, and I mean, his reputation is growing and growing, and I'm even seeing him in town, and he's a nice guy, and he's talked to me a couple times, and now that guy's walking by my booth, and he said that I could follow him. And in that desperation, Levi says, I'm going to follow you. That's the first blank I want you guys to write down. We can go to that. We can go to the next slide. When you experience God's grace, it changes your priorities. And for many of you, I'm preaching to the choir. 
Your life changed drastically when you interacted with Jesus, when you placed your faith in him, when you responded to the, the gift of grace. Listen, when I was um, 16 years old, my parents forced me to go to a church camp. Grew up with uh, three other brothers. I'm the middle. It goes Michael, Matthew, Mark, Marshall, all M's, okay? And I am your classic middle child, black sheep, you know? Uh, I, tell a, I tell a family picture story of my older brother is the son on the farm. My second brother is the golden retriever that plays fetch with dad. I'm the mule out working. I got scars on my back. And the little brother's the show pony in the barn who's got fresh apples and water. I'm not allowed to interact with him or look at him. We got to keep him clean, right? Classic third child. And I grew up in a legacy of believers. Great grandpa was a German preacher in Portland. Grandparents on grandparents that pray for the family. It's a very familiar picture in my mind to see my dad with his Bible all beat up, rolled up on the lazy boy next to five other books. My mom praying in the background. My brother Michael reading his Bible every night as I'd walk by his room on my way to play Halo on the Xbox. <laughs> very familiar pictures. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll save you the story because it's too long, but I, I took my parents' mini, I, we love minivans in the Hartley family. I took my parents' minivan for a joyride in the neighborhood and drifted it into three trees. Yeah, an upperclassman had taught me how to do it with his pickup truck. Minivan was a little different than the pickup truck. And uh, that ended in eventually the van arriving back at home, and there was multiple consequences. Uh, and one of those was, you're going to church camp. And I was like, I'll do anything. I mean, I will do anything. Don't, don't send me to church camp. I'd grown up in the church. I'd been at, been at the church since I was one years old. But I just didn't connect with Christians. I, I, was, um, I was an athlete, and my buddies in high school weren't Christians, and the people I ran with weren't Christians, and the church kids were weird to me, and just didn't want to interact with them. So to put me on a five-day overnight camp with them sounded like the worst experience. It just sounded like prison. So I was like, Mom, Dad, you can't do it. But they're like, no, nope, we're doing it. And they doubled down and they went. At this camp, I mean, they make it even worse. At this camp, there was four teams that you had to be placed in. There was like the grunt team, which was responsible for like loading up the luggage of these like 300 high schoolers. There was the prayer team, which is like two people on that team. Uh, <laughs> there, was, there was another, there's like a service team or something. There was a silent team. And then there was this team called the Happy Fun Team, uh, which again, I want you to picture a 16-year-old sophomore boy who thinks he's far too cool than he actually realizes, uh, doesn't want to be at church camp, um, thinks kids are kind of weird. Uh, you can imagine the team I for sure don't want to be on is the Happy Fun Team, okay? I didn't even know these teams existed, but as my mom dropped me off to the chaos of kids and the buses, she said, by the way, I had to sign you up for a team. I thought the Happy Fun Team would be a good team for you. Close the door. My experience. And they're like over there like dancing and doing songs. And I was like, no, no, no. Don't put me on that team. So I go to camp and God just continued to, to break down my walls. I interacted with high schoolers my age that lived differently. And I mean, I knew the Bible stories. In Sunday school, I was only allowed to answer twice. Because I would want to answer every time. I knew the stories, but Jesus hadn't changed my life. And as I watched these students, I realized by the end of camp, I think these guys know a Jesus differently than I do. 
And it led me to a moment of desperation where I said, Jesus, that's it. All I want to know is, are you real? If you are, I'm all in. And I'm at that place. I'm at that moment of surrender. And it was in that moment that Jesus met me. And it changed my life forever. And I came out of that camp just a different person. I mean, I was on fire for the Lord. And when my mom picked me up that that end of camp, when we were driving home, I was like, don't say, don't tell mom your life changed because we got to get home. We've got to huddle up the whole family. We had a 20-minute drive home. I lasted like 30 seconds. And I was like, mom, i got to tell you what happened. She was crying so much, we almost went to heaven that day because we were all over the road. All right. But you know it, right? When you experience God's grace, you don't even need to explain to you. When you experience, you say, where are we going, Jesus? I don't care where we're going, but if I'm going with you, I'll go there. Let's do it. Changes your life. That's what happened to Levi. That's what happened to many of you in the room. I know for some of you, you're still searching, you're still looking. Listen, Jesus wants to change your life. That invitation is open to you even this morning. That you can find yourself in a similar desperation moment where you look at your life and you say, it's not working for me. And he wants to provide you a way out. You could pray to him this morning saying, Lord, I want to know you. And he would reveal himself to you. Okay, I want to, I want to show you what happens next. Levi goes to a party, okay? Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors others were eating with him. Pause, we're going to stop right here, okay? Um, what I love about this is it shows you just the evidence of grace in Levi's life. His life is so transformed. He's like, I got to let other people know about this Jesus guy. And I got to invite my friends. They got to hear about him. They got to respond to him. And so he throws this, this really big party. I think about um, when my life got changed. I went back to my friends that, that did not know about Jesus um, this is an extreme term, but I kind of became an evangelist terrorist. I was like, I'm telling everybody about the gospel. I mean, I used to be in, in, in line in, at football as a wide receiver. I'd go run out, catch a pass. I'd get back to the line, and I'd be like, okay, so anyway, no, I'm telling you, man, Jesus is real. No, he's really real. Okay, hang on one second. And I'd like, do that. Be in the lunchroom, like, no, I know you need to finish that burger, but I got to tell you about what happened. I can't, man. He's real. It's crazy, you know? We, we see this in the, in the church that I work at. Often the people that bring guests Often the people that are desperate to see people come to know Jesus, they just became believers. They just experienced a life-changing transformation that comes from experiencing the grace of God. And they're like, this is real? I got to tell other people about it. We got a woman in our church who recently gave her life to Christ. And now she's hosting a prayer meeting in her, in her condo, okay, with 20 other women and 10 of them don't believe in God. And they're coming in there, and she's telling people about Jesus. And it's, you know, it's not the most polished communication style ever. But her heart has been changed. And she wants other people to be changed from it. That's what we see in Levi here, right? Jesus changed his life. He's completely unashamed, and he wants other people to know about it. Listen, if you're struggling with sharing your faith, uh, it's not go read an apologetics book, and you'll be better. Go watch a YouTube video so you can learn the argument better. No, no, no. It starts with experiencing the grace of God. And for some of us, it's, it's been a long time since we gave our life to Jesus. And we need to find ourselves back at the base of the cross. We never graduate from the cross. We never graduate from that moment of, I don't deserve this, yet you love me anyway. And you gave this to me. 
That changes the way we approach the people around us that we want to know about the goodness of God. Okay, there's a problem though. There's another group there. They're not too happy about this. Let's study those characters. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and with the sinners? Okay, to, to move fairly quickly here, uh, the table was reserved to, to your friends, to those you associated with, to those you approved of. And now Jesus, this traveling rabbi, is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so in his statement, he is saying, I approve of these people. I can belong with these people. And that threatens the religious leaders, right? Because like, well, it's because of those people that we got put in exile in the first place. So why are you hanging out with them? To help you feel the context a little bit, uh, it's not just that Jesus is hanging out with the rough crowd. It's literally that Jesus is eating a meal with the people that have betrayed the nation of Israel. To give you the closest picture I can give you to it, it would be like you living in Germany before World War II and Jesus is sitting with Nazis, eating with them. And you're aware of what that party represents and you're aware of what that party is going to bring to your country. And you're not excited about that. And so sometimes, again, we like to say, man, the Pharisees, they just don't get it. No, no, no. They're watching the people that have betrayed their own nation and Jesus is eating with them. And this is when Jesus says this great rebuke to him. He responds with, I love that, first of all, I love that they, they say to the disciples, but Jesus picks up on it and goes, well, let me just talk to these guys, right? So Jesus comes over and he says, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, it's a beautiful line. And what I love about this line is Jesus is saying, I'm interested in those that know that they are sick. The tongue-in-cheek. There's some sarcasm here. Jesus actually can be sarcastic sometimes, yeah. And that's what we see in the heart of Levi, right? He's aware that his solution to the problem in his life isn't working, and he needs something else. And Jesus shows up, and he goes, I think that's it. And the Pharisees refuse to recognize that they're in the same boat as Levi. That, yeah, they're going to need a savior to show up and to free them from their context. And they completely miss it. But the second blank is this. Go to the next slide. There we go. When you experience God's grace, you want others to also. Right? That's the heart posture of Levi as he invites his friends over for this party. We're supposed to contrast that with the Pharisees who are just completely missing it. They completely miss that God is restoring and redeeming this, this Israelite who has wandered, and he's bringing him back into the flock. They completely miss it. You know, uh, it's important to know that as we come to experience God's grace, there is a moment where we need to recognize, I need that grace, right? Um, and some of us refuse to acknowledge that. We do the comparison game, and we go, oh, I'm better than that person. Maybe even compare yourself to like the, the big bad guys, like the Hitlers of the world. You're like, well, I'm not Hitler, right? And so you start comparing yourself to other people, right? Maybe other people in other political parties, right? You're like, well, I'm not them, right? And then vote for that person. And the problem with that is it's a faulty comparison system. Because you're not supposed to compare yourself with another person. You're supposed to compare yourself with the holiness of God. <laughs> and as you compare yourself with the holiness of God, you realize we are not on the same page, and that brings you to a place of desperation of saying, 
Jesus, I need you to show up because I can't fix this. There's an exhaustive gap between me and the holiness of God. And no matter what I do, no matter how much money I give, how many hours I serve, how many prayers I pray, I cannot leap over that gap unless you show up and make a way for me to come to the Father. But we got to come to that place. It's like driving around with the check engine light on, right? Some of you, all right, I'm not going I'm not, I'm not to make you stand up, but you're driving a car right now with a check engine light on, aren't you? You're saying it's no big deal. It's been like that for a year, right? And the problem with that and the check engine light is your car can still drive for a little bit, can it? Maybe a long time. You don't see any problems. Little do you know underneath the hood, it's just the slow chaos is building. But you're like, it's fine. This is the way we treat our lives sometimes. The check engine light is on. The Holy Spirit's bringing conviction. And we're going, it's fine. It's, this thing, this little baby runs great. And we got to realize, oh no, God is trying to get me to slow down, acknowledge there's a need, focus on him and let him address it. Okay? Here's how the Pharisees respond to Jesus' comment. They bring up a practice. We'll go to the next slide. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Their concern is, okay, all right, he's at the party, and here's the problem. He's feasting when he should be fasting. And the Pharisees had established a rhythm in their life where every two weeks they would fast. And maybe this moment falls on that fast. And so they're frustrated that another rabbi who has disciples isn't training them in that custom. He's not training them in that practice. And so so they're they're critical of Jesus because his behaviors aren't matching their extreme measures, right? Here's Jesus' response to them. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and those days they will fast. Uh, There's some beautiful symbolism in this. Um, Jesus provides two quick metaphors, a wedding and a funeral. He says, right now, it's the wedding season. The groom is here. They do not need to fast. A funeral is coming in the shape of a cross. It's coming. There will be a moment to fast. But the groom is here. And you just, oh, don't you just wish the Pharisee would go, oh, the groom, the Messiah, he's right here in front of me. Oh, I missed him the whole time. Don't you wish that that would be their heart posture? It's like Jesus just serving it up for them. My guys, open your eyes. The groom is here right in front of you. This Messiah that you've been waiting for, he's here. He's right here, right now, in the flesh, right in front of you. And you're focused on whether I'm fasting or not. The groom is right here, and they completely miss it. Why? Here, here, here's the third blank I want you to write down. Preserving the culture can lead to forfeiting the experience of God's grace. Here's the challenge. These guys are so focused on preserving this religious system that they literally miss out on the Messiah right in front of them. And they miss out on celebrating that Levi's life has begun to change because of the work of Jesus. And instead, they're on the outside of that whole experience. That is a challenge for each of us in this room that we can fall ourselves in. We can become more concerned with preserving our Christian culture than we can be focused on experiencing the grace of God in our life and in others' lives. 
Right? This shows its head in a lot of different ways. We can become more focused on making sure our candidate gets elected than reaching our neighbor for the gospel. Right? We can become more focused in making sure our prayer circle at school is uh, you know, pure and clean than we can on reaching the classmate that God's put us next to. We can begin to create all different kind of circles that we leave people on the outside of, and Jesus comes in and he blows those circles up. He's not interested in preserving a culture. He wants to reach the lost. And you and I can find ourselves focused on preserving a culture, and we can miss out on the mission of God. There's a big warning in this passage. Here's Jesus' response to them. Here's what he says. He says, oh, he tells them a parable. Now, we're still at the party. We're still at, we're still at Levi's house. And Jesus goes into an object lesson here. Okay, and here's his first object lesson. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they'll have torn the new garment and the patch from the new uh, will not match the old. So, I mean, I could just see him like grabbing someone's cloak or grabbing his own cloak and saying, listen, you guys get it, right? And, listen, everyone gets this. You don't take new clothes and damage your new clothes to fix your old clothes. That would be a waste of the new clothes. You, you, you don't do that. And he, he takes it one step further. He goes into another object lesson. He picks up one of the wineskins. Here's what he says about the wineskins. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, the new wine must be poured into new wineskins. If you're, if you're a note taker and you got that hand out in front of you, you got your bio in front of you, just circle new and old every time it shows up. It's a lot there. What's the point? Jesus is talking about new and old. He's talking about new and old here. What's he talking about? He's saying, I'm not interested in refining the old system. I'm not interested in that. No, I'm doing something new. I'm doing something brand new. I'm not here in making the the pharisaical laws and customs that we've established better. I'm not here to tighten down the hatches on the nation of Israel because we've wandered a little bit. I'm not taking care of the old. I'm doing something brand new. Now, here's the challenge. It's the, it's the final part of the verse, verse 39. No one after drinking old wine wants the new wine, for they say, the old is better. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, it is. Old, old wine is better than new wine, Jesus. You're, you're right. But what he's talking about is a heart posture that happens, where we start saying the old is always better than the new. Star Wars 4, 5, and 6 will always be better than 7, 8, 9. <laughs> I agree with that one. I agree with that one. Uh, Michael Jordan will always be better than any player that ever comes. Uh, you name it, right? We can, we can go through all these. Where we look at the old, it gets kind of encased in legend status. We can't touch it. It's always greater than anything that ever comes. And Jesus is saying, there's a heart posture there where we value the old and you get stuck in it. And Jesus says, I'm doing something new. What's the new thing that he's doing? That's the final blank. A new thing that Jesus is doing is he's got place for Levi at his table. He's got place for Levi at his table. And that really bothers the Pharisees. But Jesus isn't interested in refining the old. He is doing something new. And what he's doing that is new is salvation through faith experienced by grace. That all can come to the Father, but there's one way to the Father, and it's through Jesus. 
Then anybody who comes and places their faith in him and wants to follow him and be in relationship with him has a space at Jesus' table. They don't got to get cleaned up. They don't got to take a shower. All they got to do is place their faith in him and they can be made right with him and Jesus has a space for them at his table. And that threatens the old system. And Jesus isn't interested in refining that. He's doing something new. I want to close with this. I want to talk to three people. I want to talk to the Levi's in the room. Okay? If you're a Levi in the room, not just that your name's Levi with the broken wing, wherever Levi's at right there. Uh, but you, you, you resonate with the character of Levi. You recognize in your life it's not working, and you, you want out. You want something that's going to work. Can I tell you something? The only thing that's going to work is a relationship with Jesus. It's the only thing. It's the only way that God designed the world. And no matter what relationship, what job, what hobby, what gym membership you just started, it ain't going to fix it. It's not going to fix The only thing that can fix it is a relationship with Jesus. And let me tell you something. When you do it, when you place your faith in Jesus, when you enter into that relationship, it's the greatest thing you will ever do. And Jesus has space for you no matter what you have done, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you will do. Because it's not based on that. It's based on what he did. And what he did is he made a way for you to be right with God. And you can place your faith in Jesus today and experience that grace. Okay, let me talk to the Pharisees in the room, which is all of us to an extent. We need to guard against preserving a culture and missing out on watching the grace of God change someone's life. There are people in your family, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace that you have already written off. And you've said, no way, not them. No, 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 I know all about them. I've read their emails, right? I've sat with them in the kitchen. I've talked to them. Have you talked to them? You know what kind of books they're reading these days, right? We need to realize Jesus wants to change our life. He wants to change Levi's life. He wants to change their life. And he wants to use you to be a part of that. And so sometimes we get so preoccupied with keeping the morality of the Christian culture alive that we don't realize but we push people outside the circle that God wants inside the circle. May we be more focused on the mission of God than preserving the culture that we're a part of. Amen? Okay, and here's the third people I want to talk to. The disciples. Kind of this hidden character the whole time in the story. The disciples are there floating around, right? Here's the challenge of the disciples. The disciples who are following Jesus face opposition from the religious leaders. So often when we think about opposition to our face, we think it comes from outside our group. Right? We think it's going to be the communist party that's going to show up and uh, persecute us. And eventually we're going to be at some moment where it's going to be our life or we deny our faith in Jesus. Right? And we, we paint these pictures of opposition comes from outside the circle. But in the Gospels, you might, if you pay close attention, it comes from inside the circle. It comes from the religious leaders. They are not okay with the way the disciples are behaving. Listen, when you live your life out and your faith out radically following Jesus, there will be people, there will be Christians that are uncomfortable with the people that you're trying to love. They will be uncomfortable with the people you're trying to serve. But if you've got your eyes focused on Jesus and you've experienced that grace, you cannot not love those people, right? Jesus has changed your life. Two, two quick names. Martin Luther, you're probably familiar with them, right? Catholic monk. Where did his opposition come from, inside or outside? Inside, 
right? But he experienced the grace of God. He's reading the scriptures and he goes, oh no, we're doing this wrong. This isn't true. We've, we've tightened some circles here that don't exist. No, 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 it's salvation through faith alone. Not by work so that no man can boast. Uh-oh, we've done it wrong. What did he do? 95 theses, boom, against the church, right? Great opposition from inside the church. But because he'd been changed by the grace of God, he had to keep moving forward. Let me give you another Martin Luther, Martin Luther King. As he looked at the way that black people were being treated in this time period, he said, this doesn't match up with the truth in the Bible, that every person is made in the image of God, and therefore every person has value. And so he began to teach about the value that every human being has. Do you think he had opposition inside or outside? He had both, but he had opposition inside the church. People weren't okay with him messing with the system. But grace had changed his life. Listen, if grace has changed your life, and you find yourself in a rub, keep moving forward. Keep your focus on Jesus. Remember that grace and keep moving. You know, this is the beginning of the Levi story that we read in our Bible. But the end of the Levi story is he writes the book of Matthew. He writes one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life that you and I study today. What an incredible turnaround for this guy who goes from tax collector to gospel writer, what happened? He experienced the grace of God. And just like God transformed Matthew's life, he wants to transform our lives as we experience that grace. May we welcome it and then follow faithfully where Jesus calls us to go. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we were so grateful that you called Levi 2,000 years ago. We're grateful, Lord, that, that you went into incredible effort to build your band of brothers with the outcasts and the rejects to defend against the excuses we tell ourselves that we are outside of your grace. When in reality, nobody is outside your reach. Nobody is outside the experience of grace through faith in you, Lord. Because you have made a way for us to experience it. Lord, I pray for those in the room that have not yet placed their faith in you, Lord, that you would use your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord, to transform their heart, Lord. That they would respond to the call on their life that you are calling right now. And they would have a similar experience to Levi and feel that moment of freedom to leave everything in faithful pursuit of you. Um, Lord, I pray that, that for those of us that have faith in you, Lord, that we would take on the same posture of Levi, that we would want others around us to experience the grace that we have experienced in you. Lord, help guard us against um, a priority of preserving the culture instead of uh, faithfully participating in the mission. And Lord, may we be faithful to where you call us as we become ambassadors of grace uh, in your name. We love you, Jesus. Amen.